Welcome to God Talk Pod's chapter-by-chapter analysis of George Martin's classic Game of Thrones from an academic, critical perspective. So here we're going to cover Catelyn 1, that is chapter 2 of the Game of Thrones book. So this one actually proved to be quite quite tricky. I mean, that's kind of odd, right? It, It is one of the shortest chapters in the entire series. Quite literally, nothing happens. It's just two people talking by a pond in the wood. That seems straightforward. But the reality is that I am virtually certain that we are uh, not supposed to look at this chapter in isolation. Instead, I'm certain that we are supposed to consider Catelyn 1 and the following chapter, Danny 1, together. We're supposed to think of them as a unit. And I think George meant them to be contrasted one from the other and that they are, in fact, a pair. They're mirror opposites of one another. The first provides the context and the contrast with the second. And we understand the latter chapter, that is the Danny chapter, in comparison with the former chapter. In some sense, these two are the real start of the action of the series. I mean, yes... We've already seen the others. Yes, we've seen a dubious example of the king's justice. But these two chapters are where we get all the background, all the world building that really provides the context that we are going to need to understand the action in in both locations. Or maybe say it like this. The prologue and brand one were about supernatural creatures and the supernatural world intruding upon the world of men. But now Cat One and Danny One are the opposite. They are about men intruding on or even overthrowing the supernatural world. We hear about the destruction of the Weirwoods and the Children of the Forest in one chapter and about the downfall of the House of the Dragon in the next chapter. What's more, the two chapters are about the Game of Thrones itself, about power politics, the trappings of power, questions about legitimacy of power and authority, and the struggle for the throne itself. All of that comes alive in these two chapters, and it I don't think it even mattered or obtained or was even hinted at in the earlier chapters. So, and that is what is going to animate the entire story and drive the action on two continents across five books, and it all starts here in these two chapters. Oh, and one more thing that it does in really a powerful powerful way is to confirm that the story is really about children growing up. It's a story about maturation, or in Joycean terms, about blooming, blooming into a mature, fully functioning adult. These chapters give us the contrast of the happy family and a desperately unhappy one. To to quote Tolstoy, happy families are alike, but unhappy families are unhappy each in their own way. Well, our unhappy family is a real doozy. (laughs) I mean, they are miserable, and I guarantee they are not like any other. Even though I told you that the two chapters are meant to be a pair, the reality is in this pod, or sorry, the reality is that the pod was just way too long and too complicated to try when I was trying to present them and compare and contrast them all together in one episode. It was just a shambles. So instead, I decided to just do the usual presentation, just the literal events of Cat 1 and the analysis of Cat 1 in one pod, 
and then the separate Danny chapter where we do the literal events and the analysis in, in another pod, and then do a special compare contrast and talk about the tension and the issues between the two chapters in a separate, in a totally separate special pod. So just continue with the, the read along and then and then take out um, some of those, just like that, that meta level analysis and put that into a separate pod. So basically we're getting a three for two or, or a three for one, maybe if you if you think of those two as, as one unit, those two chapters as one unit. Finally, one thing that we will absolutely not do here is discuss all of the great world building that George does in these chapters. The history, the backstory to the series, that is all laid out in these two chapters. But I mean, the reality is that is just not what I'm here to discuss. I'm trying to provide literary analysis. And just to be honest, the history of Westeros, I mean, it's not my forte. I don't know nearly, I don't know nearly as much about it as as some of the commentators out there. There are just superb deep dives, deep discussions of that material all over the web or on YouTube or in the pod world. I'm I'm not going to add any value here trying to recreate what someone else has already done much, much better. I mean, if I had to pick just one, again, there's a lot, right? But if I had to pick just one, I'd go with the Not a Podcast not a podcast, Song of Ice and Fire reread. So to me, those guys probably do the best job of getting into the literal events of the books, providing the context around the events in the books, but then also giving you or making a more thoughtful uh, presentation um, and providing a sort of literary interpretation of some of the events you see. So, So I think that's a good one. So not a pod or not a podcast. Okay, so without further ado... Let's have it cat one. So at this point, we have had two consecutive chapters of supernatural creatures, of shocking violence, epistemological overload, questions about justice. Frankly, questions about justice worthy of Plato himself. So what does George do for an encore? Well, the answer is reminiscent of that great scene from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. If you if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's a play, but also made into a movie. Hedwig, at one point, turns around to the band and says, let's take it down a little bit, ladies. And then promptly goes on to produce this something of exquisite beauty, the song Wicked Little Town. And that, of course, is the prelude to or the setup for the Wicked Little Town reprise version, the Tommy Gnosis version of the song, which includes the line, forgive me for I did not know. I was just a boy. Forgive me. I didn't know I was just a boy. Tommy is a kid who made a mistake. Hedwig also has a lot of maturing and growing up to do. They both have to reckon with past mistakes. So that seems like a very fitting comparison to make here. George has provided a simple, beautiful story, a beautiful chapter that takes down the tempo Uh, after those initial chapters, but it also makes it crystal clear that the story is going to be about children, about children maturing. And just like Tommy and Hedwig, there is an easy way and there's a hard way. But if they survive, both routes can lead to maturity. 
And as we've already said, Catlin 1 is the shortest chapter, certainly one of the shortest chapters in the book. And indeed, it's one of the shortest chapters in the entire series. In action terms, virtually nothing happens, but you just cannot overlook the chapter because it is the setup and the context for so, so much of what happens later. So we've already mentioned the connection with the Danny chapter that follows this one, but it's important to consider that it is placed here. The Catlin chapter is placed here because of its relationship to the Brand chapter, the Brandon chapter, which immediately precedes it. If the series is about children, if it's about children growing up, then we need to see mothers. We have to have mothers in the story. We already met Bran and his dad and his brothers, so we need to see Cat. We need to see Catelyn to round out the picture. We cannot talk about kids and maturing and growing up without mothers. So George has to show us a mother or mothers early in the text. So that is why Catelyn 1 happens to fall between Brandon 1 or Bran 1 and, and Danny 1. That's exactly why it's placed where it is, and that explains its function in the story. Okay, so here we go with the literal events of the chapter. What we get is a conversation between a husband and a wife. It's just like every husband and every wife everywhere. What do they talk about? But their kids. How are the kids? Oh, how about your day at work? Oh, what's the latest news? I mean, right? This is, this is classic. We hear about the children that we have yet to see. That is the rest of the Stark clan, Arya and Sansa and little Rickon. We get the first ever. This is the first time ever, I'm sure, that we hear winter is coming. So baby Rickon better grow up fast because winter's coming for you, little fella. Oh, and we finally get to hear Ned's take on the execution. This this is important, right? Because earlier we asked, why did we only see it from Brandon's perspective? Why do we only see Brand's point of view? Well, here we get the, the alternative. We get to hear what Ned has to say of Garrett. He says, he was half mad. There was a fear in him so deep that my words couldn't reach him. Okay, so remember back in the prologue how we discussed that knowledge requires a framework for understanding and and because we saw their we saw their voice even though Garrett and Will pre presented him with evidence, even though Garrett and Will told him what happened, he he still demanded to see things with his own eyes and even when he saw the wildling uh environmental infrastructure abandoned and the axe abandoned surely signs that, you know, something is amiss here. This is not normal. Even then, he refused to believe. So he did not believe what he was seeing with his own eyes, or he didn't interpret what he was seeing with his own eyes correctly. So let us not forget that context then when Ned says, the man was half mad and my words couldn't reach him. I mean, are we supposed to take that at face value? Uh, I don't think so. And, and I think as if to underscore that very point, immediately after Ned tells her about how hard a time that the Night's Watch are having, Catelyn says instantly, oh, is it the wildlings? To which Ned's almost predictable response is, who else? Who else could it be? Well, Cat tells him straight out, Ned, honey, there are darker things beyond the wall. But Ned's response is classic. 
and, and this is very important, so let's let's get this right. In journalism school, they would call this the nut paragraph, the nut of the whole scene. The most important thing or key paragraph in the chapter. Sentence one, he tries to dismiss her. Oh, you listen to too many of old Nan's stories. As if that were a valid reason to dismiss her argument or her question. But we know from the textual evidence, right, of just the first few chapters, that old man is setting up to be a very reliable source of information. Second sentence, the others are as dead as the children of the forest. But we know from the textual evidence of just the first few chapters that the others are a going concern right here, right now. And because of the pairing, right, because we're paired, the others and the children, I think it, it can only be safe to assume that George is signaling us here. The children of the forest must also be a, a going concern. They must also be real. They must be out there somewhere. Third sentence, Maester Lewin would tell you that they never lived at all. The Maesters, and now that's a title or a function that we have heard uh, several times already in the story. These are presumably special guardians of knowledge. So based on this sentence and Ned's interpretation and how Ned characterizes it, it seems clear that Either maesters don't know, right? So it could be that their knowledge is limited. They're just, they're ignorant of these, of the situation. So one, possibly they could be ignorant. Or two, that they do know, but they choose not to disclose the information. So they're either dishonest or deceitful in some way. And they, they do have true knowledge of the situation. But, but again, this early, we just, we don't know and we're not able to make that determination. But clearly to say that, the maesters would tell you that they never lived at all. That's a striking assertion. When again, we know obviously that the others are real. So, and we know from old man that they and they have a long history in Westeros. So it seems odd to assert that the maesters say that they never lived at all. So, so that's another sentence to be on the lookout for, or that's another important concept here. And finally, the the real kick in the pants, the kick in the pants to the whole thing is Ned is talking about the others and again, the children. Remember, it's a parallel construction, the others and the children, the others and the children. So he's constantly pairing those two. So that's how I'm virtually certain, 99% certain, even at this early stage, we can be clear that since George has already shown us others and Ned has paired them constantly, that Clearly, the children of the forest are going to be a go. They are real. They're a going concern. So, so Ned says about the others and the children, no living man has ever seen one. I mean, that we should be flabbergasted when we read that because no, no living man has seen one because you just chopped the head off the guy who had seen one. So, so Ned, Nedard, my friend. But I mean, but the good news is. We can count on good old Cat to call him out on his nonsense. She calls him out straight out. Oh, like like any good wife would, right? I mean, so let's, you know, husband-wife, long-term husband-wife relationship. She's not putting up with this crap, you know? Hey, dude, until this morning, no living man had seen a dire wolf either. So she just tells him, bro, you're full of it, you know? And credit to her for standing up for herself and all the mothers that, and wet nurses everywhere, right? <laughs> George highlights at the beginning, mothers and wet nurses, they, they're the ones that have knowledge. They have real, genuine knowledge. And they have knowledge that 
obviously the lords and, and the maesters, right? They have knowledge that lords and maesters clearly lack. Whether you want to call that common sense or an acceptance or openness to new information. Again, we just don't know this early what the sort of what the characteristics of that knowledge are or how that knowledge is constructed, but clearly Cat is just calling him out at every turn, right? Okay, now here, so things change, right? So so now now we go to Catelyn giving him the news that his foster father, who also happens to be his brother-in-law, his foster father, John Aaron, has died. And how does Ned respond? This is very important. What is the first thing that Ned says? Are you certain? <laughs> so if he doesn't see it with his own eyes, he does not believe it. So remember, we just had, we just had a member of the Night's Watch. We just had Garrett tell him, presumably, tell him about the others, to which Ned says, oh, the man's mad. The man's half mad. So he doesn't believe it because it's beyond his scope or beyond his thinking or understanding. He doesn't believe it. He chops the guy's head off. But, but here is his wife and he's not going to chop. Right. So here is his wife and he has to deal with the information because she's standing right there telling him, hey, here's how it is. But again, Ned's reaction is is so important. He doesn't see it with his own eyes, so he doesn't believe it. And if that sounds at all to you like an echo of Waymar Royce from the prologue, then I am frankly inclined to agree. I think that is intentional on George's part, right? But it's also important to note the very next paragraph. George sets up Ned as an unbelieving person who lacks understanding of his situation or circumstance, who refuses to believe things that he doesn't see with his own eyes, right? And we could maybe even extrapolate further and say, like Waymar Royce, even if he did see, you know, the wildling camp with the abandoned environmental infrastructure, even if he saw it with his own eyes, he still might draw the wrong conclusion or he still might refuse to believe because he doesn't have the framework to believe. Even though we've set up Ned as this kind of a or again, we've set up a range of epistemological problems around Ned. The next paragraph is is different. We shift completely to a different aspect, a different problem. Ned immediately turns to questions of family. If John is dead, what about his wife and his child? And then later, Ned says to Catelyn, go to her, take the children, fill her halls with noise, fill her halls with shouts and laughter. So Ned's immediate reaction is a compassionate reaction. Oh my God, there's a fatherless child somewhere. We need to do something. There's a widow, go to them, help them. Ned is clearly, clearly in this domain. He is a compassionate actor who really genuinely cares about the widow and the poor fatherless kid. And then of course, how does the chapter end? It ends with news of the king. Every chapter so far, we have heard people invoke Robert's name and purport to be dealing out the king's justice. Well, here it comes again. He's coming to Winterfell. He's bringing half the court with him. Oh, and his wife and his children and his brothers-in-law. So in very short order, we're going to be confronted with all the family that we can possibly handle. Oh, and I think I forgot to mention the, the second sentence of the entire <laughs> the second sentence of the entire chapter it happens to be crucial because in case you missed it in the prior chapter, 
George gives it to us again here with a reference to River Run. We discussed this at length in the prior episode. Here we're just going to say that referencing River Run is the first word of uh, Finnegan's Wake. That's one of the most famous books and one of the most famous sentences in English literature. So that's not a mistake. So we're, we're claiming, or I'm claiming, that this is an intentional reference to James Joyce here. Okay, that covers our sort of literal review of events now. So let's get to the analysis. With respect to the analysis, I'll just speak, I'll speak briefly about the key themes and ideas that we encounter, including uh, winter is coming, the gods would, Winterfell itself, and Ice the Greatsword. And of course, we have to talk about the Cersei mention at the end of the chapter. Okay, number one, we get the first ever use of winter is coming. Of course, there has been a lot of talk about winter and the cold, but this is the first time that we hear the stark words themselves. Winter is coming. And I argued in an earlier episode that, the, that it could be understood literally, that winter is cold and hard and harsh and we need to prepare for it or suffer the consequences. Or it could be understood metaphorically. Life is hard with metaphorical summers and winters, ups and downs, and we have to be prepared to endure those hardships and to overcome. Or it could be understood at what I'm calling the moral level. So that's the level that says, what does it mean for us and our own lives? And how can we apply this to our own lives and learn and benefit? So at that level, I argued that if you think of the myth of Persephone, where winter symbolizes death and living in or, reside, or traveling to the land of the dead, and spring represents rebirth, then winter is coming as a reminder to us all of our ultimate mortality so it should be understood more like so i mean winter is coming so so winter is coming the stark words should be understood more like the stoic mantra of memento mori or uh, which means remember you're, you will die and i think we do have evidence here that that is in fact a valid interpretation or a valid uh, association to make because when Ned says the words winter is coming we see that Cat has a literal physical reaction the words give her a chill well we have already seen a number of people in the book who get physical chills and have physical reactions to the cold our night's watchmen for example and they all ended up dead so to me that's a slam dunk winter is coming is to be understood as a reminder of our own mortality. You better get busy living because we're all dying. Okay, so that was number one. Number two, here we are introduced to the Godswood. The chapter opens on the Godswood. So there are a lot of things potentially going on here. I want to draw your attention to the first potential association that George could be making. What is God's wood? Once again, we'll do the old thing. Think of it as two words. God's would. Well, to me, God's wood connotes the paradise or the Garden of Eden ex explicitly. I, for one, think that we should be on the lookout for biblical references and biblical associations. And sure enough, we don't, we don't have to wait very long. The, the very third sentence of the entire chapter, the third sentence compares a God's wood, the, the river run God's wood, to a garden. I think it's safe to say we're in the uh, 
you know, we're in the land of biblical references or biblical understanding. And what's more, we get references to the first men, the first men as being descendants of the gods who walk in the garden with the children of the forest. God walking in the garden with his children. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm getting very strong Old Testament vibes here. Or, or are we supposed to, or should we understand the children as pre-fall man, man before Adam and Eve, um, you know, eat of the fruit and are evicted from the garden? What are men but sort of self-aware, filled up with knowledge? And, and I guess we have to put a qualifier here. So just having knowledge isn't enough. We've already seen multiple times in this story, though. You, having knowledge, you still need a frame of reference. You still need to be able to understand it and act on it and make good choices. So maybe that points to men have desires and will that leads them astray or leads them to make bad choices. Uh, they have political and social structures and institutions, which can be problematic, right? We've already seen Ned do sketchy things in the name of justice, in the name of his, his uh, king. Of course, there's the problem of evil. So all of these things that are inherent to men, the first men. So when you say the first men, it connotes all of these complicated associations that just don't exist with or aren't consistent with the idea of children, children living in a natural or pastoral sort of, you know, beautiful setting, right? Free of, free of all these sorts of things. So here's where we have to make our obligatory Russian literature reference. This really sounds a lot like late period Tolstoy, where he advocated a philosophy of simple, natural living in accordance with nature. He's super critical of the church and the state and all of the power structures that man himself creates. Well, we just, we don't get any further context or insight here in this chapter, but I feel like this is clearly one that we're going to have to put a pin into or put a pin in and come back later, or at least Keep an eye out for it later. Okay, so that's one take on the God's Wood. Now let's consider another alternative. What stands at the center of the God's Wood but the great heart tree, a weir wood? Well, in the first place, why is it important that the trees have faces? I mean, just out of curiosity, what do you think? I mean, certainly we've established that one of the key themes of the books is seeing and knowing. And having a face means or connotes having eyes. And I'll be damned. It says right there on page two of the chapter, uh, page 19 in my edition, the eyes were strangely watchful or the eyes followed her or Catelyn could feel the eyes on her. So George is making a point of calling this out over and over and over again. Clearly at this early stage of the novel, we are not equipped to know or to even guess what this means but we have to believe or assume that it is important because he has just mentioned it three times in one chapter. He didn't do that on accident. He did that for a reason. So another question we could ask is, what is behind a face? What's behind a face? What's behind eyes but a living, thinking mind? And just to be sure that we get that association, George says on page 20 of my version that the tree was, now here I'm quoting, the tree was watching, listening, and thinking its long, slow thoughts. 
So that comes after, uh, on the prior page, it describes the heart tree. Again, I'm quoting, heart tree with bark as white as bone and leaves like a thousand blood-stained hands. We cannot, at least I, I don't think we can move on from this without discussing Dante's Divine Comedy, where there is a similar forest. The seventh circle of hell contains the forest of suicide. So in Dante's forest, the souls of people who commit suicide are turned into or, or trapped in trees. And the argument or rationale for that is that they have abandoned their body. They have discarded or denied their own body so that in hell they are deprived of their body in the afterlife. Uh, again, Dante's punishments often reflect the supposed sin and are magnified or carried on forever. So each tree in the forest on the seventh circle contains a soul, a person trapped within. Certainly here, now, white bones blood red hands and a face and eyes that think and see and that does that sounds to my ear a lot like another potential connection to Dante so far so again we'll have to just monitor that one okay so we've covered one winter is coming to the godswood and Frank and right a couple of different interpretations of the godswood uh, one is a biblical one and the other is a Dantean one so Third, or for the third topic, we're going to talk about Winterfell and the greatsword ice together. Again, there are many, many discussions of the function and history and meaning behind these things available elsewhere online. So I am going to focus on just one aspect or one issue that I believe is important and that will move front and center in the very next chapter, in the Danny chapter. So here we're going to just call it out and point it out to set up what comes next. With respect to Winterfell, what the chapter does is, I mean, briefly, right? It doesn't go into a ton of detail. But with Winterfell, what it gives you is a discussion of its history, its enormity, its association with the godswood and the first men. So it is to be understood as a historical symbol of power, an enduring historical symbol as a seat of power in its own right. And so we don't get that much about it here, and we don't need that much about it for the function that it's supposed to perform in the story. But let's just note that this clearly is a super important, it's an iconic location of historical importance and enduring uh, power. Look at Ice, the greatsword. It is 400 years old. It is wrapped up in all these powerful historical associations and meanings. The name comes from the Age of Heroes. I mean, that, that's amazing. There's an Age of Heroes? I mean, holy cow. And the sword itself dates from before the Doom. Before the Doom. Doom with a capital D. Whatever that is, right? I mean, that's... That sounds pretty profound. It is forged by spells. I mean, so it is magical, or it's at least associated with magic or the product of magic. I mean, this really is. The sword itself is a symbol of power. It's one of the trappings of power. And it's important, too, that 
there is a line later, later in the series, which goes something like, how can you be a great house without a Valerian steel sword? I mean, something you know, like that. At least that's the sentiment, right? <laughs> so, I mean, the answer is, it's not because you need a sharp sword to be a great house, right? It's not because oh, I need a really fine edge on my blade. It's because Valyrian steel is a symbol of power and tradition and magic and authority in its own right. Okay, so now last thing. The chapter ends with a discussion about the queen, the queen's children, and her brothers. This is another big moment and another big pointer to James Joyce. This is where we get the mention of Cersei. Cersei is, of course, a a character, a famous character from Homer's Odyssey, and the name of, you guessed it, right? You guessed it. The name of one of the episodes or chapters of James Joyce's Ulysses. Now, the name is spelled slightly differently, but it is a homophone. Homophones are words that sound the same. They sound the same, but they're spelled different, or they have, and they can have different meanings, of course, too. And so here again, I, I just, I do not believe for a second that that is an accident of the hundreds or even thousands of character names that George has generated. One of the central female characters of his story just happens to share an association with the longest and arguably most disturbing episode of James Joyce's Ulysses. So I argued in the Bran episode that the use of River Run was a deliberate pointer to James Joyce, that we should be primed, be on the lookout for Joyce references. Well, to me, this is a clear reference, again, in no unmistakable terms. You can't use River Run and you can't use Cersei you know, in the same chapter, right, that Catelyn 1 begins with the second sentence, she was a tully of River Run, and then the last page makes reference to to Cersei. So I just, I, I don't believe, I cannot believe that those are accidental, and I have to think that we are supposed to set our mind to uh, Joycean references and Joycean themes. So that that's where I'm coming from there. <laughs> so having said all that, I actually have to break the narrative for a minute and step into pedant, for lack of a better term, step into pedantry corner. So a pedant would rightly point out that in classical Greek, Circe is in fact pronounced Kirki, and it's not a home phone at all. Face on me, right? You got me, Sheriff. But just to be clear, I am not saying that it's an explicit nod to Homer's Odyssey, though I would be shocked if to find that that's not true, but that it is an explicit nod or an homage, if you want to call it an homage, to Joyce's Ulysses. So we are not, in fact, talking about ancient Greek, but modern 20th century English. So every English dictionary you can find, OED, Oxford English Dictionary included, suggests Circe is the proper pronunciation. So in modern English usage, and, and what are, I mean, definitively, what are Joyce and Martin but modern English writers? So in modern English usage, these are homophones full stop. Okay, so now let's set the pedantry aside for 
We set this pedantry aside for now and return to our original discussion. The Cersei episode in Ulysses is an absolute nightmare. It is a long, alcohol-induced, absinthe-fueled nightmare scene. Bloom follows Stephen and he follows Stephen into a whorehouse. I mean, that's what happens. There is an, but but then what happens is, so the story is told from Bloom's perspective. And so he essentially just goes into this long, I mean, it's basically, like I said, it's basically a hallucination or it's a nightmare. So at some point during the nightmare, he, there, there is an extensive trial scene. He is put on trial for his sexual indiscretions, his deviance, uh, his, frankly, his mistreatment of women. At some point, in the hallucination, he's crowned as a king. He is massively self-aggrandizing. He's a charismatic leader. Then it, we switch, right? We cut to a, another scene where the, the madam of the house dominates Bloom, who enjoys the domination. He's, he's humiliated. He's clearly a masochist. It's a masochistic fantasy, really. He is auctioned off as a sex slave. This is, again, it's all in the fantasy scene or what I'm calling a hallucination or a nightmare scene. Oh, and did, did I mention that there, at some point he transforms into a woman and gives birth? And again, even though I'm telling you that in George's work, it's not explicitly a reference to Homer. Um, it's important to remember that Joyce's Ulysses at least is an homage, right? It is a... You know, he is giving a nod to Homer. He's following Homer's work in, in some sense, loosely. It's loosely based on Homer's work, or maybe better say inspired by Homer's Odyssey. Anyway, in the Odyssey, Circe is a witch. She's a super powerful witch. She's one of the most powerful. Well, yeah, she is. Basically, Calypso and Circe are the two most powerful female characters in the story. Or, or Circe uses magic. Circe is a witch. She uses magic to turn men into beasts. So put your metaphorical hat on there. So then in the Joyce version of the Circe episode, it, it is filled with beastly imagery, beastly references, and, and just with, so it's consistent with that theme or that idea. And as with so many things that we've seen at this early juncture of the novel, we are not really prepared to say if or how this will carry through later or what the exact influence will be. Later in the story, what is Cersei's character going to be like? What is her family going to be like? Or her brothers? Or, you know, is this association with Joyce's Ulysses supposed to be informative? Uh, I mean, so we, we just, we can't say for sure, but we should absolutely positively be on the lookout once again for these Joycean themes and references. On that note, I'm going to wrap up Catelyn 1 and move on to Danny 1 which is a much bigger chapter and a crucially important chapter in the book and in the entire series. So I'll post that one here shortly as a follow-up and then um, and then move on to that uh, promised third element, the, the compare and contrast between the two. Okay, so I'll get, try and get that done here pretty quick. Okay, so thank you for listening to this one. And uh, yeah, thanks. Bye-bye.